couple flies buzzing around the stage. And try your best not to be distracted by them. I'm just praying that one of them doesn't go all Mike Pence on me. Because you're not going to hear anything I say if there's a fly right here. Oh, my goodness. Uh, there is a poster that's hanging up in my office. And on it, there is a, there's a very large, right in there in the foreground, there's a very large bottle that's floating out in the ocean. Of course, there's a handwritten note on the inside. In the background, there is an island. And above all of that, there is the word lost. And some of you remember that really popular TV show a while back that everyone was fascinated with, wondering what this thing was about. And, I must admit that I, I enjoyed watching it too, but the, the poster hangs in my office. It, it was originally purchased because we liked the show, but then it now hangs in my office for a deeper meaning, a more powerful one, probably a really obvious one, but one that I need to be reminded of all the time, and that is on the other side of that wall, there is a world out there of people who are searching for answers and searching for hope and searching the horizon looking for rescue, while at the same time, so many being just as clueless as the passengers of Oceanic Flight 815. This is an important reminder for us. It really is. It's, it's a reminder that I need to hear again and again and again. Why is that? And that is it's because whatever remnants are left inside of me, the fallenness uh, that is left inside in my human heart, it is often pushing me in the direction of frustration and resentment and anger and fear and just all-out cringiness inside when I see and when I hear of the darkness that is out there. And my tendency is to take a stand in judgment upon all that I see out there rather than be someone who is ready to rush to the aid of those in need. Do you follow me? You follow me? Now, Paul gives us a rather graphic description of what's going on out there, and this may sound very, very familiar to you. It comes from Romans chapter 1. I'll just read from verse 28. It says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Does that sound familiar to you? Sounds very familiar to me. The question is, though, how does it make you feel? What, what response does it trigger on the inside of you when you see this kind of stuff happening? Maybe you, you've seen it happening amongst your friends or your family or coworkers of, or fellow students. Our, fellow, our, our passage this morning, it begins with this verse. This is verse 16 of Acts chapter 17, and it says this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, he's waiting for Timothy and Silas to be sent to him. He had to leave in a, in a hurry to get out of uh, harm's way. 
Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Once upon a time, Athens, you, you could have called it the greatest city on the face of the planet. It had been known for its commerce. It is known as the cradle of democracy. It is the epicenter of, of so much art and architecture and culture and, and certainly philosophy. That's where we find Socrates, right? And Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus and Zeno. This is where it was at. This, this, this was it. Now, by Paul's day, it was a little less significant. The city of Corinth had taken the prominent position in that region. But Athens ah, still had the university, still the place, the go-to place when it came to religion. In fact, they say that just about every god under the sun could have been found being worshipped there in Athens. And it was at Athens... It was Athens that Paul stepped into and was completely taken aback. Verse 16, it tells us he was provoked. The word there that's used actually has more of the drive towards he was deeply disturbed, angry. He was angry at what he saw. He takes one look at what's going on in Athens, sees it to be a place of darkness. It's full of idols. It's full of false teaching of people who did not acknowledge the one true God or give him the honor that he deserved. Stirred something inside of him. Something primal inside of him was responding to what he saw. And so we might think that someone who is so moved in such a way that this guy, he's just going to explode. He's just going to come storming in, and maybe like Jesus storming the temple, he's just going to start toppling things. He's going to take these idols push them over, and things are crashing all over the place. You know what it's like to feel righteous anger, don't you? Of course you do. You feel it when you see crimes committed. Some were desensitized to, right? But the, the really disturbing ones, or especially when the crimes are committed against us. Maybe you watched the news recent, recently and your anger burns as you see hypocrisy and favoritism and people getting away with things that they should not get away with. Maybe you've heard about some of the material that's being pushed into the public schools and in the hands of our children. And you're just dumbfounded by its graphic content, its, its perversity, the corrupting effect that it's going to have if it's placed in their hands. These are the kind of things, just a couple of the things that stir in me that kind of righteous anger. It just makes you disgusted. It makes you angry and furiated. What do you do, though? How do, how do you respond when you, are, you have these gut reactions. A lot of people have responded a lot of different ways over the past several years. Some have just upped and, and left. Leave town. That's the way to do it. Some take it to the streets or to city council meetings or more, more than usual, they take it online. Some point the finger at fellow Christians and say, you know what, it's really you to blame for not doing enough, not saying enough, not caring enough. Some just lash out and they argue and they get in other people's faces and they let them have it with just this unrestrained vitriol, all that they can muster at least. I think there's something really important for us to see here. Taking place in the great city of Athens. 
And that is the Apostle Paul, this, this man of God, this, this veteran missionary now out there on a mission to proclaim the good news of Jesus. He's filled with anger at the sight of unbridled, rampant, pagan worship. And what does he do? If this doesn't astonish us, I think it should. Because he doesn't come bursting out in a blaze of, of holy fire, declaring all that he wrote in Romans chapter 1 here. He could have said, you utterly pathetic, absolutely stupid fools. You think you're so smart, do you? All you philosophers, think you're so smart? You've exchanged the truth for a lie. <laughs> and guess what? You're going to get what you deserve. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. <laughs> does he do that? No, he doesn't do that, does he? Instead, what we see is he, the fury that's inside of him, it moves him to action. Yes, but what kind of action? It moves him <laughs> to seize the moment to introduce them to Jesus. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. His deep-seated revulsion, it moves him to be part of a solution here. It moves him to share Jesus. I can just imagine inside the, it, it, him thinking, look, look at what's going on here. Look at, look at these people. People that need Jesus. Look how far off they are from the way God designed them to be. They don't even recognize him. They need Jesus. What did Jesus say? We talked about it a couple weeks ago, John 3, 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It can be so easy to climb up onto that seat and act like it's a throne. And condemn. In fact, it's getting easier and easier each day we live, isn't it? It's getting so easy. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that there is, when there's opportunity for us to take a stand that we shouldn't take it, I'm not saying that. When there's opportunity for us to speak out and speak for what is true, when there's opportunity to, to vote to protect our children, when there is opportunity to make society more in line with God's good design here for the good of everyone, I'm not saying don't take that. No, I think we should. But what we're so often tempted to do, rather than simply be, be stirred up to bring about good change, is to let our righteous fury get the better of us and lead us to, to put the crown on and to take up the scepter and to say, you know what, off with their heads. You can ask my, my wife, she'll tell you. I've, I say this kind of stuff, not off with their heads, but this is ridiculous, this is horrible, I can't believe it. And yet we haven't been called to do that, have we? No, on the contrary. Paul tells us what we should do with our enemies. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome with evil, overcome evil with good. Jesus said it too. He said, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. 
Friends, I don't believe there's anything wrong with, with righteous anger. In fact, if our hearts are being formed and shaped to conform more and more to that of our Savior and to our great God, then the things that make him mad, they should make us mad as well. But I think where we go wrong is when we decide to use our anger in ways that we should not. Like jumping up on the throne and heaping condemnation on a world that Jesus alone has been granted the authority to judge. John 5, 27. God the Father has given that authority to execute judgment to Jesus because he is the Son of Man. I like what Pastor Alistair Begg said. He said, we're, we're called, I wish I could do his accent. <laughs> we're called in the New Testament not to condemnation, but to proclamation. We haven't been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus, this power of God for salvation, everyone who believes, to, to put it to the side and just jump into the judgment seat. We're to give it to the Jew first and also to the pagan worshiping, perver, perverse, perversity spreading Greek as well. Paul knew what it was like to be lost. He was very aware of how lost he was. He, he called himself the foremost of sinners in 1 Timothy. He looked back on his life, and he saw himself as the worst of the worst. doesn't get any worse than him. He had been arrogant. He had been cynical. He had been filled with all kinds of hatred and condemnation for those who he thought were lost. And not only that, he actually did something about it. He went around rounding them up, making it his mission that to make sure that Christians were punished. Paul knew that the gospel was the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes because it was powerful in his own life. And I think if we take a good, honest look at ourselves, we would know that we're not exactly Snow White either. How's the gospel powerfully transformed you? If it has. If it hasn't, we need to talk. And that doesn't in any way reduce the fact that sin is sin. Despicable, reprehensible. We could talk about the horrific abuse of children. We could talk about something that, that we might, might just think is, is completely innocuous, like, you know, disobeying parents. That made the list, really? We could talk about the most basic sin of all, and that is not acknowledging God for who he is. And most people would go, oh, well, that's not really a bit. No, it's, it's right there. It's the same stuff. It's awful. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, to those who were living in the more prominent town 50, 50 miles away from Athens, he said, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral which constitutes probably to most of our world today with the technology that we have. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What strong words. And then he says, and such were some of you. He knows who he's talking to. He's talking to these Greeks living there in Corinth. He knows their lifestyle. He was disgusted by it. He saw the idol worship at Athens. And then he says, 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Yes, Paul was angered by all of this idol worship that he saw, but what did it move him to do? To present the powerful gospel of Jesus. This is so bad that it cannot be clearer in my mind. They need Jesus. They need it desperately. Does your heart long for others to come to know Jesus? I will be the first to admit, and my wife will affirm to you, I have a long way to go in this regard. We talk a lot about the need to be witnesses for Jesus in our lost world. But you know, before we even think about what we're going to share, we need to be praying that God gives us hearts that even care to share it, that care for these people. I think that one of the biggest hindrances to our Christian witness in the world is not that we don't know what to say. (laughs) It's that we don't care enough about God's glory or the people that are blind to it. We don't care about the people who are lost. And someone says, well, what about those who are just mean-spirited and rude and, and hateful and disrespectful to us? Them too? Yes, them too. Look, look at these Athenians, how they saw Paul, verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. These people were not impressed with Paul. Not one bit. They thought he was a loony. Or at the best, they thought he was just, he's just talk, talking nonsense. The term that they use here is this term spermologos, which is a term uh, uh, that was used to uh, describe birds. Just, just kind of pecking at the ground, pecking at seeds, picking up twigs and, and dropping stuff. We have squirrels in our backyard right now, and they're attacking our trees, building some sort of nest, and stuff's falling all over the place. He's just dropping these things all over, messing things up for us. He's just such a babbler. He's, you know what? He's a bird brain. This Paul is a bird brain. And he was preaching this idea of this resurrection, and that, in their minds, was absolutely ridiculous. If you talked about them, about the human soul maybe living on and on and on, they probably, many of them would have gone, yeah, yeah, we believe that, all except for the Epicureans because they didn't believe in the afterlife. But talk about the resurrection and they go, nah, no, no, this is crazy talk. They had actually heard that the, the, their god, Apollo, In one of the the plays that was written long ago, Apollo had said, when the dust has soaked up a man's blood, once he is dead, there is no resurrection. So there you have it. There's no resurrection. Paul, you're insane. This is ridiculous. Luke mentions that it was these Epicureans and these Stoics that were starting to converse with Paul. These two groups, they couldn't have been more opposite of each other. Epicurus, he taught that life was just a crapshoot. What you see, what you get. There is no God. There is no afterlife. The material world, this stuff here, that's all you got. This is what you have to live for. And you've only got one life to live, so you better do everything you can to 
possibly to enjoy this to the max. Maybe you get Epicurious magazine. It's all about like eating the very best food possible because you know what? That's what this life is. Enjoy it to the max. Minimize pain, maximize the pleasure. Zeno, on the other hand, the founder of Stoicism, he believed that everything matters because everything is God. He was a pantheist. He taught that the highest good was to identify and live by what is, is, is reason here. Be in harmony with everything as much as you possibly can. It wasn't the material world that, that really matters. Life is, life is all about self-discipline. You know, it's about eliminating it's about eliminating pleasure, and it's about eliminating pain. You know, it's about getting to this point where you actually don't really feel much of anything at all. And these two ways of thinking, of course, are, are prominent in our day today. We don't, we don't talk about Epicurus much or Stoicism much, but they're there. They're those who say that, you know, there's no real meaning in life. Even if there is, we don't really care. Let's eat, drink, let's be merry, let's do everything we can to throw caution to the wind, for tomorrow we, we die. Seize the moment, seize the day, carpe diem, right? Thank you, Robin Williams. Then there are some who say life is pain. Life is pain. Life is suffering. I said, oh, Princess Bride, life is pain, highness. And so I'm going to take command of it. I'm going I'm, I'm to embrace it. I'm going to take mastery over it. I am not going to let it consume me. I'm going to overcome it. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's Invictus, right? William Henley. And so there are the two different camps, yet they're wanting to listen to Paul, so they must not be so convinced that their way is the only way. Why else would they want to listen to what he has to peddle? But they, they do love talking about these things, and they love entertaining ideas. And, and Paul, yes, sounded like a crazy person, but they love listening to anything new and anything novel. And so, okay, we're going to let him speak. We, well, let's invite him up to the hill. Let's invite him up to Mars Hill, to the Oropagus, and let him speak up there. What's Paul going to say? He wants them to know Jesus, yes. He wants them to come see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. What would you say? What would I say? Well, I'd probably be thinking, what intelligent philosophical arguments can I muster up so that I impress them by my wisdom so that they start to actually consider whether or not Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? I'd be looking at this meeting as kind of an arena. It's them versus me. It's, it's home team versus the, the challenging team, the underdog. Here I come. But I think it's important for us to understand something else here, and that is that what Paul is going to, to do here is not to try to convince them how intelligent he is. Oh, not by a long shot. This is not going to be a battle of wits here. This is going to be all about him introducing them, just introducing them to God, the God who is living who's sovereign, who's loving, and yes, who's even avenging. We noted this before in our study of Acts, but I think that we should note it again, that Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my what? My witnesses. And witnesses do what? They bear witness. So often we think that being a witness is all about coming up with these compelling arguments and, and needing to convince people, needing to debate. I hate debate. 
And we might desire to do that if we truly care about the people. And we might get engaged in these kind of things. We might do everything in our power to help bring people to Jesus. But what it, all, what, it, what it all comes down to is that all we're really called to do is proclaim, to be witnesses, to say, this, this is the truth here. Be introduced to Jesus. So what does Paul say to them? Three very important things. First, God made the world. Sounds so simple, but it's so vital. Verse 22, Paul, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, these people may have been looking at Paul as some type of clown. He doesn't return the favor, does he? Actually, he pays them kind of a compliment here. I see, you're, you're very religious. He goes on, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I may proclaim to you. So he's paid them a compliment. He's identified a point of, con of, of, of contact here, some topic that he can address that is going to springboard him into telling them about who this God is. He's off and running, isn't he? There are some good tactics here that we should probably take note of if we're going to interact with the fallen world. And if you want a good book on that, there's a book actually called Tactics by a man named Greg Kokel from Stand to Reason that is excellent. But it's amazing how it's showing a bit of concern, a bit of interest, being observant can have and can, can catapult you to an entry point of having a meaningful conversation. So here Paul finds himself at the door, ready to introduce them to God. For all their intellect, for all their rich history of being philosophers, of, of religious masters, he finds a little chink, doesn't he? A little chink in their armor. They have a monument that's erected to this reality, points to the reality, they don't have all the answers. You admitted you don't have all the answers. You have a statue, an altar to an unknown God. So Paul essentially says, my friends, this is your lucky day. <laughs> Let me tell you about this God. And that's exactly what he does. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. I just imagine him going, does not live in temples, temples everywhere. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Essentially, what he's doing here, he, he's setting them straight. The Epicureans thought there is no God. Guess what? There actually is a God. I'm telling you about him. The Stoics, they thought that all that they could see and all that they could touch and taste and hear and smell was God. But that wasn't correct either. Creation isn't God like the pantheists say. His Avatar series? No, 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 James Cameron, I don't think so. Everything is not God. No, there is one being who made everything, but is so much bigger and so much more complex, and he is independent of it all. In fact, he's not in need of us at all. On the contrary, we need him. We're completely dependent on him. Boy, the environmentalists need to hear this. 
You're not the most powerful influence on earth. It's not ultimately in your hands. You can actually stop freaking out. Yes, treat the world with respect and honor as you would any good gift that you've been given by someone important. Yes, respect it. Care for it. Yes. But this is your father in heaven's world. He created it. It's his. Those who are questioning their identity need to hear this, right? You're not an accident. You are not a mistake. Your spirit has not landed in the wrong body. You have a good creator who formed you, who gave you breath. Those who are religious need to hear this. God is not in need of your sacrifices. He doesn't need anything. On the contrary, you need him. Materialists, they need to hear this. There is more to life than all this stuff that you are trying to collect for yourselves and store up for yourselves. Life is more than just about living for the here and now. There is a God who's waiting for you. The anxious need to hear this. There's a God who gave you everything you need for survival. He's the one res responsible who, who created this beautiful world for you to live in. The one responsible for the heart that beats in your chest. Do you think that you can trust him? You should. People who are suffering need this. There's someone who understands, someone, someone so much bigger, someone, someone who's present everywhere and all-knowing. You know he even knows what's going on with you right now, that secret suffering that no one else knows about, that you're maybe too ashamed or too, you can't even muster up the strength to share with anybody. He knows. The disillusioned, someone bigger out there. He, he's at work. Life is not without meaning. You, who you are, in the life you live, it, it actually matters. I know you feel terrible right now. Your life matters. Our children need to hear this. They need to hear us sharing with them at a very young age that there is a God and they are not him. <laughs> Look to him. Trust him. Seek him. Obey him. Rely on him. People need to hear this. How many voices are out there right now and they are trying to push ideas our direction and saying these things, these ideas are truth when they are totally, utterly unfounded, pathetically lacking evidence to substantiate them? Pantheism? Are you kidding me? People are running around everywhere thinking that this is God and that's God and you're God and I'm God and all of this. The trees are God. And so we need to go thank the trees. We need to go hug the trees. We need to just talk to the trees. Show me one shred of evidence that a tree can hear you. As far as I know, it takes an ear to hear, and then there are these neurons that are sending signals to a brain that needs to interpret the sound waves and understand them, comprehend them. And as far as I know, when, when any one of those things goes bad, you can't hear. You're, you're, you're deaf. And so how is, how is some inanimate object that has none of these things going to understand anything? How are they going to have the faintest awareness of what you were saying or what you were doing to them? Evolution? Do you honestly expect me to believe that everything's getting better? Everything gets worse. Everything falls apart. You want me to send my kids over to your house? You will know that for sure. That's how it works. It's actually a scientific law. 
things tend towards disorder. So how can you explain the world to be so came to be so complex and so fine-tuned and so good without someone who is incredibly powerful and intelligent and well-intentioned behind the curtain? What's more, explain to me the embarrassing lack of evidence of the fossil records. You know, one or two fossils does not cut it. You know, the Bible doesn't waste any time giving arguments to support the existence of God. It just doesn't do it. You can look all over the place, and, and the arguments to support the existence of God aren't there. In fact, if you turn to the very first verse, you find, in the beginning, God did this. It's, it's just assumed. It's, it's there. Why? Because there's evidence all around us. Paul actually points to that in chapter 1 of Romans. He says, what can be known about God is, is plain to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The Bible doesn't have to give us evidence for the existence of God. The evidence is already there. What the Bible does need to give us evidence for is the reason that rational human beings that are planted smack dab in the middle of this marvelous world could have the stupefying lack of intelligence to think that this is the result of anything but God. Bible, you need to explain this. This doesn't make any sense. And it does. The Bible devotes a lot of time to that. It tells us exactly how the blinders went on and how people fell into darkness. So Paul tells them, God is the one responsible for all of this, for creating the world. Then secondly, he says, God is present. And you know what? He's in charge of this world. He says this, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him, he's quoting now some of their own poets, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets has said. Another quote, for we are indeed his offspring. Boy, it's, it's, it's important for us to, to realize that fundamental to fallen human hearts inside of each and every one of us is this driving force that convinces us that it is not God who is in control of all things. It is we who are calling the shots when it comes to who we are and what we're all about. We are autonomous. We're the rulers of our lives and our worlds and our domains. Though we have Tons of evidence to the contrary. We're constantly fighting, constantly things spin out of control. Why do you think they're swearing in the world? It's because things are, are falling outside of our control. And so people are starting to swear left and right because they're frustrated. This isn't the way it should be. I should be in control, but I'm not in control. We like to think that. We like to think that we are in control, and we like to think that we're actually better than other people, and it makes perfect sense because if we think that we are the masters of our universe, then other people are just living in our universe. <laughs> it's our world, they just live in it. The Greeks thought that way. You know, they thought that way. They thought everyone who was not a Greek was a barbarian. And here Paul is saying, we all came from one man. You're no better than anybody else here. 
God made all of us from one man. You can't call them barbarians. And not only that, you think you're in control? He determines where you're going to live. He determines when you're going to live. He determines how many days you are going to live. And he quotes their own poets. And he says, it's not God who made himself unknowable. He's not hiding. No, he is actually not far from each one of us. We are the ones who have ignored him. Is Paul speaking truth? He is. Will they believe it? That remains to be seen. Final thing he wants them to know is God is coming to judge the world. The gods that they served, they, they weren't really worried about them. I mean, how could you get super worried about these gods that were made of stone and gold and silver and whatever else? Their, their temples are littering the countryside. Yes, we believe in these gods, but they really aren't. We don't see them moving very much. They're not doing very much. They're not much of a threat. But the God that Paul is telling them about isn't like that. He says in verse 29, Being then God's offspring, we ought not think to think that the divine being is like gold, or silver, or stone, and imagine uh, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In other words, if this God that I'm talking about made everything, he made us, and we're able to think, we're able to get angry, we're able to move, we're able to inflict harm, then we shouldn't be thinking that he is anything less than us. He's far greater than us. And certainly we shouldn't be thinking that we can shape him into whatever mold we want to put him in or manipulate him. On the contrary, this God is in command. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There he goes again, raising him from the dead. He says, God let you speculate for a while. God let you philosophize for a while. God let you make everyone else uh, be convinced how intelligent, how smart you are. It was for a period of time, though. Do you know that time has come to an end? Well, that's a bold statement, isn't it? Popular one? Do you think they were excited about it? I don't think so. How many self-appointed popularly affirmed kings and queens, masters of their destinies, of their fates, want to hear that there is a more powerful being that has a calendar, and your day is on it. But here Paul is telling them just that. This God has the ability to do it. This God has the right to do it. And he knows when he is going to do it. What's more, this resurrection that you think is so silly, that's the very thing, the very thing that is rock-solid evidence that all of this that I'm talking about is and is coming to be. I don't know if Paul flipped to John chapter 5. It's possible that the, the, the speech he's giving right here, you can actually go to, to Athens, to the Areopagus, you can see it. It's printed on a big plaque, his, his address right here. But it's very possible that this is just the cliff notes that we have here. And there's a lot more content to it. I wonder if he brought in something like John chapter 5 and pointed to the reality that, that this Jesus, 
who the Romans thought that they killed, he's the one who's supposed to come back to judge. Look at John 5, 21. It says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Well, my friends, to be rescued from judgment points to the reality that there is a judgment. And the unspoken question that Paul leaves before these Greek philosophers is the same question that these truths about God leave for us. What are you going to do with that? I gave it to you. What are you going to do with that? It's a question we need to put before our world as we bear witness to the truth. Whether we've presented a compelling case or not, the truth has been laid out. What are they going to do with that? What have you done with that? I don't know every single one of you in this room. I don't know where you're at, but I do know you have no excuses because you're living in this world, this marvelous world, and it points to the fact that this great God exists. Not only that, you've had it just laid out for you through the words of Paul. This is who he is. This is what he is. This is the story of reality. And the question is, what will you do with that? My prayer is that you will drop any silly game that says, ah, I don't think so, I don't, and you'll acknowledge God for who he is. And you will look to the solution that he marvelously supplied in Jesus Christ. And you will come to the foot of the cross, and you will recognize that when Paul said, such were some of you, yeah, that includes me. And I am deserving of judgment. But thanks be to God that Jesus Christ came and took my place. That is where my trust is. That is where my hope is. There is nothing good inside of me. It is all the good, incredible gift of God and his son, Jesus. And the time for you to do that is right now. But how would the Athenians respond? Just fall on their faces, so deeply moved. Wow, Paul, your words so eloquently stated. We can't even believe the wisdom that has come forth from your lips. Yes? No. They laugh. Now, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. So they, they, they laugh at him. They, they, they mock him. And those who didn't, they say, well, you know, maybe we'll, we'll want to hear this again. That sounds pretty promising, right? It sounds hopeful. Maybe they will come around. How about this, Paul? You want to come back and, and, and share with them? They say, yeah, 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 this sounds interesting. Maybe I'll think about it sometime when I have time and, you know, and thinking, ready to think about serious things. And how many people, how many of us have done that in our life? Maybe you're still doing it right now and saying, yeah, 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 this whole religion thing, this whole God thing, this whole Jesus Christ thing, I kind of get it. My parents were into it, blah, blah, blah. But I'll get serious about it later. I think there's a really important reminder here again for us here in, in Athens, and that is that it doesn't look like later ever came from them. 
verse 33 says, so Paul went out from their midst. Seven words, I can say it in two. He left. He left. We have no reason to think that he returned. In fact, Paul's writings, they they lead us to believe there was no church established in, in Athens. No church. First church in Greece we find out, is, is in Corinth. And that's coming. Apart from the small handful of people mentioned in the last verse of this chapter that actually believed, we're led to, to, to believe that the whole effort to bring truth, to proclaim truth here on Mars Hill looks like a failure. You ever felt like a failure? Would you consider yourself a failure if you told someone the truth about God and they shrugged it off? Or they just laughed in your face? Paul leaves the Oropagus looking foolish in the eyes of these wise men. But you know what? Paul was no failure, was he? No failure. And that's because he succeeded in doing what he was called to do. And that is bear witness to the truth. And you and I have got to remember that though we may not have all of the eloquence and all the convincing arguments, all the awe-inspiring words that people may want, we have what they need. It's the very thing that we needed. We can share with them what they need. And then it's up to God to open their hearts to the truth, just like he did for that woman outside the city of Philippi, by the river. But you know, you and I won't share. We won't share unless we have hearts like Paul's and hearts like Jesus. Remember, he was coming toward Jerusalem and he looks at the people and he weeps. We need to see people who are frustrating and wallowing in darkness and perpetuating evil and saying, you know what, this evil, is. there's not enough of this. This is actually good. More people need to get involved in this. We need to see those people and have hearts that break. Yes, anger at the fallenness we see in our world, but driven to giving them, giving them the hope of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me for hearts like that? Let's pray. Father, give us hearts that are repulsed and anger, angered by sin, starting first with the sin that remains in our own lives. But Lord, hearts that break for the lost. Help us to faithfully bear witness to who you are and the solution from judgment that you offer through Jesus. And we will give you the glory. In Christ's name, amen.